Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. Was this the beginning of your active activism? But freedom is somehow always conditional here. If you have a critique for the resistance, for our resistance, then you better have an established record of critique of our oppression. I got more, y'all. They may be friendly, but they're not your friend. If you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do. Now, this is also in particular for the black women, in particular, who have spent their lifetimes dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves. We can and will do better for you. That might have been the single moment in my life that threatened to turn me away from activism. Hello everyone, I'm Aisha Sasei, and welcome to the season finale of The Accidental Activist. This is the show where we discover how an accidental turn of events can spark one's passion to change the world. Right off the bat, I've got to say that I can't quite believe we've already come to the end of season one. That flew by fast. Also, we have saved the absolute best for last. It was a unanimous decision by the Accidental Activist team. We all felt that this guest was the season's most thought-provoking and had to be our season closer. At this point, you're all probably shouting, who is it? Well, your wait is finally over. I'm thrilled to say my final guest is the one and only Jesse Williams. Jesse is perhaps best known for playing Dr. Jackson Avery in the hit medical drama Grey's Anatomy. But that is just a very small part of who he is. Acting aside, Jesse is also a director, producer, tech entrepreneur, and social justice activist. Over the years, I've paid close attention to his work as an activist, often wondering how he got started, where his fire comes from, and how he reconciles being an activist with operating within the unique world of Hollywood, an ecosystem with its own challenging and at times troubling engagement with issues of equity. Truthfully, I lost count of the number of times I found myself saying whoa during this interview. Jesse said so much that struck home for me, and I found myself thinking a great deal about what he shared. At points, it felt like we were in a classroom together, and I loved every second of it. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. But more importantly, I hope that Jesse's story and the stories of all my wonderful guests from the season leave you inspired and ultimately activated. Jesse Williams, welcome to The Accidental Activist. Thank you so much and congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to it's have exciting. you with us. Thank yeah, I'm you. happy to be here. Let me 
ask you, what is it like to grow up in a household in which both of one's parents are activists? Well, uh, I, I pause only because it's the only one I know, but it was, there's an underlying intensity to it. There, uh, there are always stakes. There is always, it's tactile. It's matter over spirit. It's doing over being. And that's not in general, that's specific to kind of what I glean from my memories and kind of internalized experiences from my childhood. I have plenty to say about whether that's good or healthy, um, and that's different. But to answer your question, what was it like? It was um, really enlightening and informative. I feel like I got a lot of context for everything, which might also have in turn stripped me of an ability to kind of experience and feel right. everything. Did it strip you of an innocence? You could substitute innocence for ignorance also. I mean, with anything, a painting, looking out the window, you can a child can just look at it. Mm-hmm. It can make them feel or not feel, often the latter sometimes in a, at a young age. And then somebody can come up behind you and explain it to you from their perspective. This is that. The context of that is actually that's the second person to ever this. And now you're getting information. It's inherently probably biased to some degree, but it's information that gives you context now which to reopen your eyes and look at it again. Now you see something different. It's augmented in form. So that first step is important, I guess. It's nice to just see it without any context. It's nice to see the picture without the caption. I didn't really have that. I had the captions on the whole time which skipped me to the front of the line in terms of understanding and context in a survival way as a looking at things through the lens of poverty and class and race and power. I was thinking that way and processing information that way since I could read, since I could talk. You mentioned poverty, and I know you didn't grow up in a wealthy home. What impact did that have on how you move through the world and see the world today? Oh, it it impacted it greatly. I think um, a not uncommon description would be, you know, I didn't know we were we were poor. I didn't really know we were poor until I moved to a neighborhood that was not poor. Not that big. And this of a is deal. Chicago. And yeah, yeah. So generic brand items and being broke in the eighties in Chicago in the hood. That's that's it's funny because our culture also we rag on each other for being poor because we're all poor you know like your your homie's got talking shoes and we people are sharing pants and And you can't afford it you can't afford it but it's also like a a way of like implied camaraderie in it us kind of ripping on each other for it then moving to the white suburbs it really affected me i knew it affected me i've learned more about its impact on me through therapy and just Mm -hmm. being an adult and becoming a parent and changing my economic bracket like it really set a lot of marks and motivations subconsciously or consciously in my life yeah um becoming kind of the only black person in a space and being on food stamps like and needing free lunch and it's at an age where you don't want to stand out or you want to stand out for the right reasons reasons that you're you know maybe because you're good at basketball or something but you don't want to be the only black person and the only one who's not you know yeah. yeah There were a lot of humiliating moments that drove me directly into 
making money yeah. um, and making sure I wouldn't feel that again and making sure that I, I would not raise a family in that situation again or, or ever, which were not always healthy or legal, frankly. You know, I'm from Sierra Leone. I grew up, you know, an educated but not wealthy home. And it mm. frames you, it shapes you, it is woven into my being and how I move through the world. Do you remember the moment from your childhood when you became aware of this, and I put it in air quotes, race? I don't know that I was able to have a cohesive thought without race being a part of it. Wow. And that that is not necessarily from outside forces. That could have been from my father in the home. Growing up around labor organizing and, and working people's consciousness, activism, and politicalization, then there's also just my father was very hands-on, looking you directly in the face, very close, consciously explaining to you the world you're about to venture off into. And what did and he say? It was a, a combination of how little or how negative people expect of you, what you have to do to not only survive but thrive. It's the classic, you have to be twice as good and, and all of that. And how to interpret language. You know, I remember I couldn't watch G.I. Joe because it's white power militarization, war machine. It's politicizing you. It right. is politics. And right. so I never saw G.I. Joe. I only saw the end credits because I watched Dennis the Menace afterwards. I can't, you can't watch Little Rascals because Buckwheat. Oh, wow. Black and white little things. And uh, it's just an innocent what? kid's show. It's not an innocent kid's what? show. Why is, the, why is the black kid the only one with his, his head looking like that? And mm -hmm. da, da, da. No, we don't do that. We don't eat those foods. They're not nutritional. You know, we only eat nutritious foods. And I read comic books. It ain't all these white superheroes. It's Bishop. It's the black superheroes. It doesn't have to be forever. It wasn't a pronouncement that this is the only thing you can ingest. But that will be your grounding. It will be your foundation. Yeah. will be seeing your value and potential in everything. And just how to enter, you know, I was in a black neighborhood. So my teachers were black. My friends were black. Their parents were black. So that wasn't, you know, we sang the black national anthem as part of our, you know, in school. Like it was a very black existence as a child that said I'm half white and my mom's family is bigger than my dad's family. So I've got a ton of, a ton of uh, white cousins, uncles, aunts, and really loving family unit. Was that complicated for you? It wasn't complicated for me. It was probably complicated for other people. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't, yes, complications arise as your consciousness rises and you catch little moments. And what do you mean by that? And does that apply to me or does that apply to all black people? Or black folks are honest in front of me and white folks are honest in front of me, by and large. I get to hear a lot of shit that most people don't hear right. um, from a very young age. And more, moreover, I got to see how, if we're going to be binary, both sides lived. So I got to see behind the curtain. It took away all this, all this mystery of pathology and how folks are thinking and twisting their mustache to get. And then you realize they ain't even thinking about you. They're just yeah. living their life this way. And that was a huge explainer to me later when I moved to the suburbs in junior high was getting inside of these people's homes and realizing all the pathology that in some regard we were running from under the guise of safety, because it sure, was very, very sure. unsafe. Chicago was hella violent. And uh, all these things that were pathologized, we were running right into and it yes. lived in the, in the white neighborhood. I didn't really become friends with anybody because I became a nigger to everybody right away if I had any problems with any people. 
any kids when I moved to this white neighborhood. You're a nigger. Girls, I was my girlfriend because he passed a note. I'm a nigger if we have a fight. I mean, your dad's a nigger. You're this. And they actually said the word to you? They said the word to me, yes. I got in fights all the time, as you can imagine. I was also little, so I had to, I had to throw down. But I developed a real deep distrust and a isolation. But I was able to see that, oh, y'all are absolutely not better than us at all. Because black, pe- black people really believe in, in some way. We, we, there's a few things that black folks love more than white people. I'm being, no, I'm wait, speaking wait, broadly. Wait. I know, yeah, no, I know. No, it no, sounds I, controversial. I, yeah, no, no, no. It's, I mean, I find it actually something interesting to dive into. So say yeah. that again. There is a conditioned admiration for whiteness, which is totally rational because what you have, what you admire is comfort, freedom, space, power, self-love that you see in others, collective growth and harmony, community that has each other's back, a community that is respected, a community that there is a consequence if somebody, if something befalls them. Those are all qualities that we would all like in our life. So we attach, if white people have all that stuff, it must be because they're white. You know, obviously I'm painting with a very broad of brush. Course, it's just not people. I'm just but this is something this. I, I soaked in early on. Like once I got behind the curtain in this community, oh, y'all don't have, y'all don't have fathers. Y'all have no moral code whatsoever. You're dishonest, deceitful, cutting, backbiting. You have domestic violence. You have abuse. You have toxicity. You have all the things that you said that are pathological to us. Yes. What I find interesting about this insight and, you know, thinking about, because we're, we're, you're a little bit younger than me. Um, I doubt just, that. You are. I've seen you. Anyway. Nothing um, on the internet is true. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I was born in England and moved to Sierra Leone when I was seven, and I lived there from seven to 16. And I, I'm always grateful for this, for growing up in the place where we were the majority. Now, that's not to say there isn't some seriously jacked up, but there wasn't this. There wasn't this. And when I hear you say it, I'm just like, wow, there's all of this you've got to contend with while you navigate just life and youth and dreams. Yeah, life is hard enough as it is. Yeah. Word. And so I have to ask, your parents were activists. What were they fighting for? What was it geared towards? And then how how were they there for you during this time when you were wrestling and fighting with people who called you nigger? Yeah, they they were they were certainly there for me the best they could be and when in terms of front facing visible activism that stuff fizzled down and away as you have to get older and you you have three kids and you have responsibilities, you know, and that you know I got I got to see it as a young person in the city in Chicago around labor. And had it or, been it, social justice and labor? It was labor okay. dealing with the destructive nature of capitalism and social economic justice for black and brown folks and for working people. And as we got older and certainly once we move, you know, my parents have to put food on the table and have to work and don't have the luxury of being able to explore and dabble and work for free and spend time for free, engage for free. So that organize for free. This is it's the most it's the most difficult work there is. You're fighting against a government. Uh, It's very hard to win that fight uh, in your lifetime uh, with no resources. So yeah, that became less visible in my living room. But the consciousness is there, and they both have very different experiences. My dad's from Willacoochee, Georgia, Valdosta, Georgia, and, you know, picking tobacco leaves and peaches and segregation in the South. And my mom's from New England, 
Very different. And they both had beautifully different and complementary beings and ways of processing information and methods of expressing kindness. Both have a big sense of collective responsibility. However, those things kind of manifest themselves differently. But they were, you know, to the best of their ability, certainly aware of it. My dad highly anticipated it. He went to the suburbs before we did to walk the neighborhood and let people know that my black children are moving here with my ex-wife. And if you have any problems, you make sure to let me know. He's, he's a very strong person yeah. and, uh, and a protector. So, so they were both definitely able to anticipate some of the predictable obstacles ahead of us and try to create safety through probably my dad, more cerebral preparation, and my mom through loving Mm-hmm. space making um, in our home. When you got to the suburbs and going off to this this private high school, I believe you became a member of the Righteous Twelve. Oh, the phrase doesn't sound familiar to me, but I, I think I, I, it's probably something I just, sometimes I black out when I speak. Uh, that that's probably something I said, meaning indicating that there was only probably twelve black people that's there. Right, that's right. And you know, we had we had in our student center, we had what we called the black hole, which is where all the black kids sit in the student center. Um, a loving term. I love this. And you became co-president of the of our, of our little black student, our multicultural student union, which is ostensibly mm-hmm. a black student union. Was this the beginning of your active activism? That's why I ask about it was, this. Time. It was probably it was the first time a title was put on it. Yeah. So I had a home that was constantly filtering what it is. That's what that is. That's what that means. That's what that means. That's who Ronald Reagan is. That's who George Bush is. Understand how these demons operate and are, how anti-blackness works through everything that is filtered through narrative, through comedy, through cartoon, through news. That is activism, you right. know, in a manner of speaking, that is certainly uh, exercising the connective tissue, the muscles around activism, right? If I, I might not get to run full court basketball every day, but I get my shots up, right? I'm shooting. <laughs> So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm everything You're being is, activated. Yes. I'm, I'm stretching. I'm moving in the house. I've got to be, I'm being active and have my filters set. My, my settings are up. So that was, and always, and, and always, you know, my dad is very, was a history teacher to us. And I've always had my own. My dad gave me more work at home. He thought it was cute. He would call it homework is not schoolwork. <laughs> like uh, he doesn't care what I'm being assigned at school. He's got assignments for me when I come home. Wow. And like stacks from New York Times articles about the African burial ground and this and that. And I've got to write a report and present it to him and he critiques it and I got to go do it again. And I'm. It sounds very intense. It was very intense. It was miserable. I hated it. And I grew to love it after it was over. I did not. <laughs> I, I, it was, it was sucked. But I understand what in retrospect, looking back as a growing person, I understand what he was trying to prepare me for. He never had any of that. Um, yeah, and, most people didn't, I, I realized. And, um, it's, there's everything about it was, it was not great, but it was a very valiant effort that has, um, served and valuable. me. And val- super yeah. valuable. Super valuable. valuable. I'm really grateful for the spirit behind it. So I want to ask you about activism as we talk about that maybe being your first time of applying the label consciously or unconsciously, or, or certainly public facing doing the work of activating others. What does it mean to you today when we talk about activism being an activist? What does it mean to you? A couple things. And I'll, I want to preface that by addressing kind of the tale of what we just finished talking about, which was to be clear, like becoming, having that title, the first time in the title in high school, 
these are things, and this is true of activism in, in general, I think, these aren't voluntary positions. These aren't things that we're choosing to do. These aren't things that are necessarily born of my makeup. They're born of anti-blackness. They're born of racist people and systems actively working against us, in front of us, constantly. And it is a reaction to that. And if I don't know how to react to it, then maybe I'm not going to become an activist. But if I've got a little sense of self and respect and history and somebody warned me sure. about this, I got a question and I ask it. Or I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow. I'm going to go swing by the dean's office and hand him this letter to explain what we're, our, our problems are. It's, it's doing, it's activating as a response to some form of real or perceived oppression. Sure. So you're almost saying that we all are. We all you could be. It's like the whole, you have to opt out. Well, you, we all... As black people. Yeah, all of us. Well, ooh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I would say that we're all probably activists in some way. You're probably activists in your own relationship. Anything that you take the reins of, and you go, hey, I don't like the way you're talking to me. You're being an activist in your relationship with him or her. So there's yeah. a question. This is where we come mm -hmm. into the definition of it. Because to me, activism suggests not just the intentionality of mm -hmm. seeking change, but also the systematic, the repeated, for the sure. continued For sure. I'm not, I don't mean dedication. to draw a false equivalency with minimum effort and maximum no, no, effort. I'm okay. talking about you're using the same muscle group. Uh, it's a, a muscle sure. group that says Agreed. this is problematic. This is worthy of acknowledgement, discussion, resistance, and, and with, a, with, a, with a goal in reform. mind. With some kind of equity in yeah, mind. Yeah, with reform um, in mind. So how you define activism mm. Or being I, an activist. I don't know that I do. I don't know that I care to. I think in this day and age, the noise machines that are abound, labels are really difficult to establish and maintain without hurting as much as you help. Now, when I, I use the word activism, obviously, so I do, there is an answer to your question. There is a, a meaning to it. I just think it gets flooded. So when I say, if I say she is an activist or I, you know, I met them in a, at an activist gathering, I'm thinking of people who are not only um, actively learning and training themselves and getting informed on, in a matter of resistance or that it was, that it be, was born of some kind of uh, acknowledgement that there's a need for resistance and facing it head on in some way, hopefully right. with others and with respect for the fact that there's likely others that have been doing it longer than you have, with that have context that you might not have. So being active in a stance or position of resistance to systems that are in place that are hurting or stifling or disenfranchising others. Ideally, that activism is serving a body politic larger than yourself. Fighting for a better grade with my teacher is not activism. It just serves, it serves just, just me. You. What are you doing that you yes. don't have to do? What are you doing? Who's, uh, what rewards are you seeking that won't necessarily land in your pocket? You know, what are you doing for others? I mean, that could have been the crest written over my door in my house growing up is nothing matters unless you, what are you doing for black people? What are you doing for poor people? Which man, was no fun as a kid. I have to say, it sounds, like I said, it just sounds intense. And I'm just going to use that word as, the, as a catch-all. So from high school 
to Temple University, then you did some teaching in the Philadelphia public school system. Who was the man that was taking shape? Pivotal time. Being in North Philadelphia, started a few student organizations, worked directly with friends and family of Mumia Abu-Jamal, demonstrated, organized around that, learned a ton from the Africa family and, and MOVE, Ramona Africa, Pam Africa, a lot of former Panthers started a student group there at Temple, was just very active in the in resisting the Fraternal Order of Police, the legacy of Frank Rizzo, real insidious carnage going on under the name of policing in Philadelphia, a real disgusting legacy there, and a deep-seated anti-blackness in the ethnic white community, I found, uh, which is really present in like Boston and Philadelphia, Italian-Irish communities, um, of which, of course, there are beautiful people and cultures. It's not a, it's not where, but where, but we understand that there are things that get woven into your identity, right? Masculine identity is directly tied to being better than and able to have your way with women. That doesn't mean all men are bad. That means we got to disentangle how you identify, right? Just like whiteness is, um, requires, you know, pretending that you're tall because you're standing on the shoulders of Africans and indigenous folks. So Philadelphia was absolutely a huge turning point in my life in terms of activism from the classroom into the street, into the actual real community with folks that live there, have to live there when you leave, live there before you got there. And just coming of age in your learnings. I, I, I remember my freshman year, I don't know what my major was going to be, but I know home for me is African-American studies department. So I just lived there. I just, I missed some of the deadlines for like a core classes. So I took like three graduate classes as a freshman. A big part of why I went there was our legacy of African and African-American studies. Temple University, you know, they had Theopilo Banga, the prodigy of Sheikh Anta Diop, you know, the godfather of so much and proving officially at the UNESCO conference that uh, yes. the folks from Kemet are black. But, but we had a Malefe Asante, father of, you know, Afrocentric thought and Joyce Joyce and Dr. Sonia Peterson-Lewis, I should say Dr. Joyce Joyce and just so many incredible professors. So I just lived there and learned a lot and got an incomplete in the class. And I, I couldn't hold, handle the load. I was a freshman <laughs> on my, you know, on my own, probably smoking too much weed and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, but I knew whatever I wanted to do, I'm going to be taking on the wisdom of, you know, my elders uh, in that department. But uh, I, I, I stumbled into a class with Dr. Sonia Peterson Lewis, who I'm still close with. And I learned about simple things, the value of operationally defining terms before you have a discussion with those terms, because we could waste an hour talking about things and we mean two different things that whole time. Oh, yeah, that's what, you're, and that's what you're doing. You're going, let's define terms before we use yeah. them and, yeah. and look at data. And is that just a feeling or is that true? And both have value, but let's just be clear about what impacts our health and wellness and, and our community, et cetera. So all those things informed me. And I, that's when I started teaching. I started substitute teaching. I started tutoring and mentoring. I, you know, then I transitioned into full time. All that stuff, all these things are out of the classroom, outward facing with people. And I felt like I was returning to my community where I grew up in the hood in Chicago, right? Like actually with people, not just theory matters, studying matters, books are great. Yes. Critical, yeah. in yeah. fact. But you have to still check in with real human beings, especially ones that you've so-called committed yourself to serving. So that was a beautiful time. And the law firm. You spent some time working in a law firm. Help people understand how that fits into the man who is taking shape. Mm. Yeah, I worked in 
huge global firms in Manhattan as a temp. I started, you know, as a temp, just on huge like hostile second request document pulls, hostile takeovers, antitrust law. Was it where no, you wanted to it, be? I had always, I had all very young. I was going. I was certain I was going to either be an NFL football player or a civil rights attorney. But you, you were small. Yes, but you don't said, dash you... my dreams. At that, at that age, I wanted to be Deion Sanders. You know, then you grow and you realize you're not growing at the rate you one would need to grow. Um, so that was I would I was I was always naturally I would I'm built to be and love and am filled by and fascinated by the work of civil rights attorneys. And that's what I where I thought I would end up. And maybe it's possible I still do. But this was not that this when I say working in law firms, it, it was not that this is huge global domination. Yeah corporation versus corporation and some real world power stuff. How does this square with serving it do- others it, 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 with it the home you grew up It with? doesn't. This was a quarter life, you know, what kind of becomes like your quarter life crisis. I've graduated. I've got a degree. <laughs> kind of interested in filmmaking. I'm just dabbling and trying, but I needed something a little more stable that I know this week I can make enough to, you know, provide. And, and part of that was I'd started a relationship. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be responsible to the person I live with. And you also got to, you know, figure out how to live, how to afford. New York is prohibitively expensive, as we know. That so, I, and I work. I've never not worked. I've never not towed my line. I, I waited tables. I was, I bust tables. I, I like the active think fast. Jesse Williams, I would be a poor journalist if I didn't say, of course you thrive as a waiter and doing that. Oh, yeah. You're good looking. Yeah, my life is a breeze because of the way I look. No, I'm, I not have, saying, I'm, lo- I'm not saying it's a breeze. I'm just saying in no. this context, particularly. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely, 100%. It's the only life I got. So I'm yeah, going to learn from it. So I'm going to learn from it. But 100%, at every turn, everything that I describe, every hardship that I have listed, all of those things, I'll be them real, are mine. And they are not somebody else's. They are not, they are not yours. They, I am loaded with privilege when I walk in a room because of European beauty standards and the way all of us mm-hmm. react to. 100%. As people pretend that me having fucking green eyes, it makes me anything. Yeah. As if I did it. Yeah. As if I somehow yeah. won a bet <laughs> you, or worked hard or did something. Up, uh, yeah. I have nothing to do with it. I have literally nothing to do with the way I look. And the way I look gives me opportunity and patience and a second chance and a first chance, and so much. I don't understand anybody who doesn't uh, acknowledge such yeah. privilege. What I always reckoned with and was aware of, and I was aware of, I was always aware of this as 10-year-old, 9-year-old, dealing with being called nigger at 11, whatever, all these things. If that's how you treat me, how would you treat my dad? You know how many times I've been told, like, oh, oh, no, not you. I'm not talking about, you know, hearing parents tell racist jokes. Oh, not you. Oh, you're, you're not black. You're great. Literally, those words in that order. Yeah. As if those two I things believe, are polar opposite, yeah, right? And, and if that's how you're treating me, you would run my father over in the street. Fuck you. I don't, I don't trust or believe any of this adulation. I don't trust or believe any of this kinship or warmth that I got from people that I know don't, wouldn't treat you the same way. And that was a huge part of my upbringing was processing and being able to assess in a room in the words of the character Guitar in Song of Solomon by one of the greatest beings to ever walk the earth. Tony Morrison. Morrison. He said, they may be friendly, but they're not your friend. That's actually one of the quotes in my high school yearbook. Understanding the difference. I can, I can experience this friendliness. I, I know it doesn't apply to all of us, so that it's not inherently deeply seated as something real. And I'm not going to sell out to it. If it can serve me for these 15 minutes and it can 
you know, whatever it is, I'll make that judgment there. And I reject it plenty of times. I obviously don't have a problem holding my tongue or speaking truth to, to power in a way that hurts my pockets. None of this shit has helped my career. It's absolutely cost me many, many, many jobs that, on its face. None of this is helpful. And, and so let's uh, talk about that. Let's talk about the acting. Jesse's upbringing was intense. You heard me describe it as such several times during our conversation. The tough love and unrelenting pressure from his dad, which he says he hated as a teenager, forged the man we know today. I think that is the source of the fire within him. The intentionality with which his parents approached giving him a clear sense of his values place in society and responsibility to his community bring to mind the childhood of another one of my guests from the season, writer and comedian Baratunde Thurston. While he didn't have the same level of intensity in his home life as Jesse did, there was the same parental focus. And the result is both Jesse and Baratunde have a very clear-eyed sense of who they are and what they stand for. And that is something I repeatedly urge every one of us to cultivate or further refine, because that knowledge is power and fuel for an activist journey. The Accidental Activist is exclusively sponsored by our friends at Mercedes-Benz. At its core, this series is about unexpected discoveries the surprising elements that propel oneself to become an agent of change. And for Mercedes-Benz, well, their story is rooted in championing the unexpected. Take, for instance, the legendary female race car driver, Evie Rosquist. In the 1950s, while women were supposed to stay in their lanes, she became one of Europe's best drivers, period, and eventually drove for the Mercedes-Benz team. When no one expected her to finish the 1962 Argentine Grand Prix, one of the world's most grueling races, she got behind the wheel and blew away the competition and the critics. She finished an astonishing three hours before the second place car, shattering gender stereotypes and setting a new race record no man thought possible. Evie's passion for racing proved to be her greatest weapon in her fight for gender equality. Today, Mercedes-Benz continues to champion women's empowerment and celebrate those like Evie who are driving forces of change. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist, everyone, and part two of my conversation with Jesse Williams. We're at the point where we talk about the speech. What we've been doing is looking at the data and we know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm, and not kill white people every day. So what's going to happen is we are going to have equal rights and justice in our own country or we will restructure their function and ours. You know, the one he gave at the BET Awards a couple of years ago. You may have watched it at the time or in the months that followed, or maybe you've only read the mountain of commentary about it. Regardless, I think we can all agree that the words he said that night in that speech were unforgettable. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it after this. The speech triggered a standing ovation in the auditorium and a 
thunderous wave of scorn and condemnation from Jesse's critics. I remember that speech so viscerally, and had always wanted to know whether Jesse anticipated the firestorm that followed. Before this conversation with him, I'd also been pretty convinced that this epic moment was a pivotal turning point for him, the watershed moment in his life as an activist. But as you're about to hear, I was so wrong. The speech was important, just not in the way that I'd imagined. Since that night in 2016, Jesse's activism has taken lots of twists and turns. So buckle up and settle in. Let's talk about being an actor and being part of an industry that wants you to stay in character. How is it for you, somebody who is as conscious as you are? Um, Why did you try it? Because I was, like I said, at a place in my late mid-20s where I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, what I was going to do. I was about to apply to law school. I was going to take the LSAT and, and that in film school. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to try. I had done some commercial acting at different points in the summer in college. I had done a little bit of modeling. So I saw checks that nobody in my family has ever sure. seen. Um, so there's a good margins. I can do that. In the auditions that my commercial agent had gotten me, I got I moved along very far and tested and was called back and in that process learned that like I almost got the Sopranos. Back really? when the Sopranos was the biggest thing in the world. Sure. I was in college, I got a call back. Whoa. All right. Interesting. And it was to play uh Meadow's boyfriend. No way. This ended up airing. This the the person who got it, if I remember correctly. I didn't have cable, so I'd never seen the show. But you know, she brings him home and What's your background, Noel? Uh, what, I, what I mean is, like, we're Italian. Oh, my dad is Jewish and my mother's family is African-American. And Tony, you know, they call him a Moulinian, you know, mm. a, a, a nigger, essentially. And it, it disrupts, you know, what she... Meadow mm. brings home a black boyfriend, a mm. biracial boyfriend. But in the process of auditioning and being called back and auditioning for David Chase, the show, you know, all this, like, and, you know, the agent's like, whoa, this is real. This mm-hmm. is the biggest show in the world. And mm-hmm. you're, like, they really... It's down to you and another guy. And I'd never acted in my life. Got zero on my resume. I'm a college student dressed wow. in like dirty vintage Army Navy clothes off of a Mumia rally with dreads. So I was a wild card. But I'd moved along pretty well. And what, but more importantly, what I learned in the doing it was that was my first time I realized, and this may sound naive, so like, oh, the actor is actually part of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think of it as a, yes, it's creative, but I didn't think of them having license to yeah. form and shape the Absolutely. moments. Absolutely. You know, you have the lines and you say the lines. Absolutely. You can say lines 18 different ways. 100%, yeah. And I never thought about that. I never spent any time trying to think about that. So in the audition process, I was realizing like, oh, I'm making a lot of decisions and I'm getting a response and it works and it's fun. And How did you book Grays? The story I just told you is I'm probably 19, 20 years old, 20, 21 years old. Then I return to just all politics. Then I teach for over a course of years. Then I come to New York and then I do the law firms and I do the waiting tables. So years and years and years and years and years go by. And then I'm working at the law firm. And then I call up my old commercial agent and say, hey, remember how you used to send me on auditions? This law firm shit is killing me. I'm working 90 hours and I'm not moving towards any goals. Uh, is there some money to be made as a real actor? And he's like, kid, get in line. You're in New York. Like, But I can get you a meeting with one person who, who runs a tiny agency. And I did. And they bet on me after our meeting and I booked Law & Order like, I don't know, four days later, no like a, very, very soon. That's what it felt like, very soon after. And, you know, the classic Law & Order job, two lines or no lines. Everybody watched Law & Order. That was cool. And then I started working and the, the, the plan was I'd said out loud, 
I'll try this acting thing for 12 to 18 months. And if it doesn't work, I'll go to law school. It's all good. So that was, so that was that I got, I had done, I got a movie, Sister to the Traveling Pants. I did a couple appearances on uh, shows. I did a play. I was hired by Edward Albee, who directed his own plays at the Cherry Lane Theater. That was groundbreaking That's for me. That's amazing. Work, working with, you know, George Bartenyev and Judith Ivey and Myra Carter. Like, it was insane. And I booked Heroes when Heroes was the biggest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. But then, as I was boarding the plane, the writer strike happened. This was, I was going to be on Heroes. Oh, my Heroes was the biggest God, thing in the world. Like, at no. the peak. The biggest thing in the world from Brooklyn going to JFK to go off and be on Heroes. I had a contract. And literally as I'm boarding the JetBlue flight, <laughs> my manager calls like, get off, get off, get off, get off, get off. It's, it's canceled. It's shut so down. Much. It's not happening. It's shut down. Go home. But you got. Uh, and then, and then, I, then I did a movie, Cabin in the Woods. I came out to LA for pilot season, met with Shonda about a different pilot she had. They just said she wanted to meet me. So I sat and met with her uh, about a different pilot. Then... That day, leaving that meeting, found out that I booked Cabin in the Woods, a movie I had auditioned for Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard and for MGM, and I booked it. So I had to fly home, get my stuff, and fly to Vancouver and live in Vancouver for two months shooting that movie, which was so thrilling and so fun. So it was cool. A bunch of up-and-coming actors, you know, it was great. I auditioned on my birthday for Grace and booked it. But that was a, a two-episode, like, recurring, as far as I knew. But I booked Grey's Anatomy. Now, again, a huge show, and... And then from then on, we moved out and, you know, built a life off of that stability. How much space was there for activism while this is all happening? And It has always been who I am, nature or nurture. It has always been who I am and what I do, where my consciousness is, who I surround myself with, who I serve, how I serve, how I communicate. And this is why I brought up that I came to acting later in life than most actors, because it was too late for me. I'm already me. This is already part of who I am. It's already how I communicate. All I did was stay me once I started acting. I have there any reason no to shedding. stop being yeah, me. Exactly. There's nothing. I'm not shedding that part. That's, that's who I am. Um, y'all can figure it out. You know, I'm going to be black in public. But people didn't know that until the BET, that speech. I think that. So <laughs> Anybody talk to me who was about paying that attention. Speech. I mean, you know, I, it's, it's what I had been doing. I, had, I was in Ferguson. I was on the news. I was on CNN and MSNBC fairly regularly rinsing people and those videos were going viral and that stuff was part of it but yes of course a larger platform you know you can be be making music for 10 years and then you have a big hit and people are like yeah. oh now you, oh you, you just started making music yeah, yeah, yeah for sure talk to me about that speech you got the it, humanitarian award yeah awarded um, by BET in 2016 and when you walked out onto the stage and Deborah Lee handed you the award this award this is not for me. This is for the real organizers all over the country, the activists, the civil rights attorneys, the struggling parents, the families, the teachers, the students that are realizing that a system built to divide and impoverish and destroy us cannot stand if we do. How much of that speech did you walk onto the stage with already in your head and set? And how much did you ad lib and in the moment? It was a combo. I had, I had a map. I had a, I had a checklist of things I was going to address. This was at a high point in what was going down. Shit was on fire. Ferguson was a real incendiary ground zero for a lot of people. And the work that Dream Defenders and folks were doing in Florida around Trayvon. And these are my people. Like these are, I know these organizers and activists and I want to serve them. And I'm on the board of Advancement Project. We're doing, we have civil rights attorneys all over the country 
lifting folks up and taking shit to the Supreme Court and and fighting this fight. So I was, I'm active in terms of, you know, my mindset at the time. When they called me and said, you got this award and you, you know, you're expected to give a speech. Denzel won this, Harry Belafonte won this. These are the people that you're in line with. My literal first reaction was like, oh, are they sure they want to do that? Like, because... you don't really want to give me, because I don't, I'm not, I don't change. This is, I, I tell the truth that as far as I know it on the mic, you, you've seen him, if I go on the news, I'm going to tell you like it is. And then I found out that it was going to be broadcast, not only live, but that since BET is owned by Viacom, it's on all their channels. So it's on like Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and Comedy Central, and it's part of their whole network. So a lot of people who wouldn't tune into the BET Awards, uh, uh, aka white folks and folks who are uh, power adjacent, if not holding it themselves, a lot of people are going to be within earshot. So let's go. And that's all it was. And I was doing a movie. I was really embedded in Atlanta doing this movie. I lost like 17 pounds. I'm living alone in a hotel room. Um, frankly, was in a really bad place in my, in, my, in my marriage. Like everything was, it was, I was having a hard go of it. But I remember the night before jotting down notes and ideas. And there's one person that I shared some of those thoughts with and notes with. It was one of my very best friends at Apero Oduye, who I hit her up in Brooklyn. I was like, you know, just what do you think? of this. And she gave me her thoughts on a couple of the bullet points and stuff. And otherwise, I was, I just got on the plane, malnourished and tired and kept just jotting down a couple ideas. It wasn't really like fully formed sentences. It was more of like maybe a bar here and then a, and then a topic there and then make sure to acknowledge that. And thank God I had no idea what it was going to do. I'm not naive. I know that it's live in a big platform, but there's no, I don't have any fear of public speaking. I don't have any fear of consequence. This is this is what we're living for. Like, yeah. what am I? I'm supposed to care about what a fucking TV show? Like, me isn't part of it. There's no me. Black people are suffering. Black people are at war. Black people have been drowning and flailing their fucking arms for centuries. There's no me. It's us. So, y'all want to put a microphone there? That's your problem. We're going to talk about what's happening with us, and you're going to have to really reckon with what it is that you're faking that you're unaware of what's happening. Let me inter maybe you're not faking. Maybe you don't understand what's happening and how it impacts us and all the ways in which we see that um, the system is harming us and that we are complacent in that to some degree. And let's just talk about it. So, yeah, it was... Were you surprised by, you know, I've seen it, I've watched it again and again. Were you surprised by how it just built? In the, the room, like, yeah, during in the, the room, speech? Like, you know, I lived it. It was like people didn't even know they were thirsty. You know what I mean? They didn't even know. Yeah. And then I mean, it's, it was really powerful to watch. It was beautiful. It's, it's, and your dad's face. I don't know if you've watched <laughs> it, but your dad's face. And that's actually my most, that was my mm. deepest impression. It was like, that's the child I raised. And they didn't know. They didn't know what I was going to do either. But they know me, obviously. But also, like, the, these are conversations we have. This is part of, this is what we do. We're talking about this stuff, and we're waxing poetic about it. And, and yeah, I'm a poet. I love language. I love its ability to hold and impact ideas and souls. I love the confluence of art and practice. I love the confluence of art and politics, of prose in anything. You're making it anyway, and why not make it beautiful? 
a lot of people would think that that's your accidental activist moment. That, that was the moment that kind of your activism was turbocharged. But is that your quote unquote moment? That might have been the single moment in my life that threatened to turn me away from activism. Interesting. And I say that because my own issues with handling and being suspicious of and unsettled around praise or receiving praise and having it feel like vanity. That's my own issue. It's got nothing to do with anybody else. But um, I was, I was okay, uh, be honest. I, I was offered a lot on the heels of that. I was offered the covers of magazines and in-depth profiles and photo shoots and endorsements and my own show and all these things. And I just, structurally, I'm pointing to my heart, not my head. I, I, I didn't have to think about it. I don't want to come up off of our suffering. I, I get it. I don't want to become a, a celebrity off of our suffering. I don't want to win anything. Put your money back in your pocket. I don't, I don't want to gain. I didn't do any of this for gain and I don't want to disrespect it through gain. And this is who I am. I'm not, I'm not doing it for your pat on the back. Don't touch me. It's got nothing to do with that. It just isn't who I am. I don't want, if I could play basketball, you could praise me for hitting the game-winning shot. If I did a great job acting and you love the work, awesome. If you love the social justice work, great. But I don't want to exchange currency for it. Um, let's just do the work. But when people call you like the Harry Belafonte of this generation, is that... That's fine. That, that's, that's fine because it's, that's a person. You know, it's not accurate. I look up to Harry. He's mm -hmm. a friend and mentor of mine. Um, who's done an astounding amount of, made an astounding amount of contributions. So I don't, I don't, I'm not gassed enough to buy into that, but I understand the sure. both aesthetic and work-related and, and career track-related comparisons. Where did you take the activism after that moment? And if that wasn't your accidental activist moment in, in our conventional sense, what was? My accidental activist moment was probably when a really strong, much bigger than me guy in my high school, white guy in my high school who was a fighter, a submission fighter before UFC or submission fighting was known, called a black girl in my school a nigger. And everybody came running to find me to tell me because I'm going to do something about it. And I adrenaline pumped and I went and I found him. And he knew what he did. If we're going to fight, he could fuck me up. But he knew what he did. And I punched him. And we're not allowed. I went to a Quaker school. You're not allowed to fight. Violence is not. Uh, absolutely no. Absolutely not. And so I beat on him and he just took it. And I, you know, got in trouble for it. I got suspended. I had to go to court. Uh, not, not, uh, we, have, we had a system to adjudicate things within the school, like a combination of student and faculty that uh, you have a trial and, and you make your argument. Yeah. And you make your argument. and. So I had to follow through. It's not just a moment that le left. I had, to, I had to put together a case and deal with potential consequences and argue that case and, you know, argue that it was a, re it was a reaction to violence, to violence that will last far longer than me hitting this person once in the cheek and deal with how to handle the consequences that they put down on both of us and return to school and life there and watch how he handled it. I'm not going to say his name at this stage, but um, how he handled it was really, really interesting because he 
could have been really shitty about it. And he acknowledged it, apologized for it, didn't fight back physically in the moment or in any other way afterward, wanted to learn. I also kind of revolutionized the system there. First of all, I said in my trial, you guys are not in any position to adjudicate this, this matter because there are no black or brown people on this jury. You don't have any, you only have white people here. So you're, um, you're out of order, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And so after it was adjudicated, I applied and became the first black member of the disciplinary committee at that school yeah. while being on trial for a fight. Now that was your accidental activist right, moment. Right. So this, like, see what I'm saying? Like staying in the system, right? You said not one and leave, right? We talked about activism being like not just one thing and leaving. I was like staying and staying and staying and figuring out how it looks if it plays out. And then I started an African-American literature class in that school. And um, that student who did that took the class with us. Stand up dude. Sat there and took our, we read Beloved together. Yeah, one of my favorite books. So so part of that moment, we'll call those series of moments uh, a moment, was actually not only not only about me, was relational to somebody else and watching a white male with not only all the power that's born of that, but a bigger person, a stronger person physically than me, handle it with humility and decency and not in any of the weak-hearted ways that so many of his peers do. Where is your activism now? Topically, it's focused on what I call kind of black public health. So it's police brutality, misconduct, police accountability, abolition, defund movement. It's around education. I am born and bred in education. It's I'm actually launching a revolutionary education platform called Assemble. Be great. Wow. And we it's a it is a BIPOC platform mm-hmm. for all of we have the best and brightest, most incredibly talented um, black and brown folks around the planet in every arena and every department and discipline. They're all there already. Wow. We're at creating an aggregator, a platform to have mm-hmm. them all come and teach and share knowledge so that we can raise our own people up and not let the moat of privileged, hard to reach institutional education keep us from ourselves. So, you know, education is changing completely. Completely. Um, and so we're part of it now. We're building a platform so that you can teach a class and you can learn from somebody who any, anything you want to do or think you might want to do will have teachers for you and examples whether you take the class or not you see that there are black and brown men women however they identify that have done it are doing it and it's a cyclical thing that we're doing we're creating you know with assemble be great it's we choose our own our own experts we don't wait for white folks to choose who's who's the good one of us we choose our own experts and we get our muscle memory back of our experts choosing us back what do you say to those people who are listening to this conversation now and say, I want to get involved, but I don't know where to start? I say, aren't you lucky because you are born in the information age where you have access to any silo or shared space of information and people. So I would say, what, are you, what do you want to get active about? You might want to get active about greenhouse gases or police accountability or education or redlining. Okay. Generally, I would always suggest uh, getting involved locally. There's nothing like being with people. And there's nothing that will get you out of your bubble than learning from and being with real three-dimensional human beings that are living it 
that it will inform you so much on all of the connective tissue and context around an issue. Because it's not just dealing with, and this is part of why I acknowledge who I acknowledge in the beginning of my speech, which were my elders, my family, and black women. Was for a very specific reason because, Thank like, you for acknowledging black women, by the way. Thank we, you. You sure? It's it's the least I can do. It, there is there is a context of perpetual sacrifice, and I don't remember what I said: serving others, everyone before yourselves. Mm-hmm. That all happens before you walk in the door, and we all think that now we're all in the door. There's this false sense of equity. Uh, you know, it's like false equivalency. We're all in the door taking the class. No, she hasn't eaten. She her kids was in a place that's not necessarily safe for that child. She's got this, she's got that, she's got in she's menstruating, she's whatever, all these things. And we're just, I'm just a guy. How do you keep going when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired? There's no level of sick and tired that I can experience that is comparable to that of my ancestors. Amen. It just, it just isn't. Self-care, I can take a break. I absolutely turn my phone off. I absolutely don't, I absolutely don't respond. I've spent the last couple of years trying to be better at saying no, which is a very hard thing for me to do. I've been gifted with an ability to keep a lot of doors open and serve an accommodator. I serve everybody before myself. That is not sustainable, I learned. It is incredibly taxing to my spirit and my energy level and my ability to be present in relationships. Yeah, I turn it off and I say no. I was thinking at some point while we were uh, talking that like, a, I'm saying a lot of shit in this conversation that I that I never say and I protect pretty closely, and I don't, and I'd say no to every podcast. And I, it's nice to be able to talk to somebody you respect Thank and you. trust and want to win. And it's all the more, it wouldn't work if I did seven of these a month. It wouldn't wouldn't be the same. I don't know if there's a value to attach to that, but it just oh, doesn't you. feel the same. So all that to you know, say I, I didn't want to overstate the. It's it's always this collision between it is need and how you how you know you can't pour from an empty cup. You know, like I'm no good to you if I'm empty, but I also you know don't feel full if I'm not working. What's your favorite inspirational quote? Oof. Um, the first thing that came to my mind that drove me through a lot of my adolescence and beyond, which is a, a quip that my dad just said kind of reflexively here and there, was, if you don't know, find out. Hmm. We can't pretend to not be able to know anymore. That hiding spot is no longer in existence in the game of life. I wish I knew more, but I, didn't, I don't know how, because I don't live in that town. Well, now you can find out. Doesn't mean you have to. Doesn't mean you have to care. But if you do care, follow through on that. Well, Jesse Williams, thank you. Thank you for for saying yes and for sharing so freely and honestly and for choosing me to do that with. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. Truly. Truly. I find Jesse's conviction and persistence to fighting for equity and improving the fortunes of the black community inspiring. Just like actress and comedian Amanda Seals, who was our season opener, Jesse doesn't care much for labels or for being bound by the activist label. In his words, I think in this day and age, the noise machines that are abound, labels are really difficult to establish and maintain without hurting as much as you help. I've said it throughout the season, don't get hung up on labels. 
it's far more important to tap into the spirit of activism, action, consistency, and being committed to improving the conditions of others. If you're looking for a succinct definition of activism, here's Jesse's once more. Being active in a stance or position of resistance to systems that are in place that are hurting or stifling or disenfranchising others. Ideally, that activism is serving a body politic larger than yourself. I'm going to double down on the others part of this equation. Being on this particular journey is about serving others. And in this day and age, we should all be activated by what we're seeing and hearing in our world. Ignorance is not an excuse. We are living in the information age and we all have the knowledge we need at our fingertips. Another one of my guests comes to mind, this time, actress Alyssa Milano. From our conversation, I took away the lessons, always be curious and be willing to learn more about issues and people with an open heart. The many different conversations I've had on The Accidental Activist were meant to ignite your passion to do something or in some cases to do more. Achieving change is hard, no doubt about it. But that fear of hard work should be overwhelmed by a sense of responsibility to get involved. As the president of the Toronto Raptors, Masai Ujiri, told me earlier in the season, we are all chosen to be change makers. So I'll leave you with these words to close out the season. Get up, get out of your bubble right now. It's time to get to work. Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasei on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasei. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasei. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now.